All right, you can take your Bibles and open them back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we are looking at somewhat of a lengthy passage this morning. And we're going to be talking about reasons to respect headship. Uh, this passage presents us some challenges and understanding, and we'll hopefully uh, do justice to these verses and seeking to explain the heart of these things and our takeaways uh, on this portion of Scripture here. You remember the story of Samson, right? Back in the book of Judges, Samson's usually the at least the one person people can remember from the book of Judges. Samson uh, uh, had... Uh, well, you can in one say he had, he had uh, well, he was called by God, I'll put it that way as I stammer up here. Uh, Samson uh, was meant to be a holy and mighty deliverer for the people of Israel. That was God's intention for him. God had sent an angel to his parents before he was born and told them that this child is going to be a Nazarite from the womb. And a Nazarite was a special position within the nation of Israel where if one dedicated their lives wholly to the Lord, they would would set themselves apart and they would live a specially consecrated life to the Lord. They would not drink wine. They would touch nothing from the grapevine. They wouldn't even eat raisins or grapes. They'd touch none of it. That was a symbol of their dedication. Not only will I drink wine, we won't even touch that plant. And they were also not to cut their hair, and that showed that they were set apart for the Lord. They would not allow a razor to come upon their head. And they would, they would live that way as, as like a vow unto the Lord. And Samson was special because his mom and dad were, were to make that for him. He was supposed to be from birth, living that way. So he was to be a consecrated warrior unto God. And you read the story of Samson in the book of Judges, and you realize that he was a failure. He was a moral failure in his own life. He did do some mighty acts. The Spirit of God came upon him a few times. He lifted the gates of Gaza. He killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. He did some miraculous, powerful things. But it certainly wasn't because he was deserving of such power. Matter of fact, God came upon him in spite of himself. God used him in spite of himself. Samson stands out as sort of a testimony of wasted potential. You see what he did living the way he did. You wonder what would he have been had he just really lived unto the Lord in his life. That he lived wholly to God as he was called to. As all the nation was called to even. Instead he married a pagan woman. He got drunk at times. He was a womanizer. Had a bad temper apparently. And just lived unto himself. Wasted potential. And the question is, why? Well, ultimately, he simply did not listen or heed God. He chose not to live in submission to God. We could say it this way. He did not live under the headship of God in his life. He chose to do it his own way. I'm going to do things my way. And we see that moral bankrupt life that he led and what it cost him. And in case you don't know how the story ends, the Philistines eventually figured out that if they cut his hair off, he lost his strength. They did that to him. They took him as a prisoner. They stabbed his eyes out, and they put him on display for the people to to basically mock and, and find entertainment in. 
And at the very end of his life, he had one last shining moment where he prayed to God for strength one last time. And he pushed down two pillars in the uh, building that all these Philistines were in. And the whole building came down and they all died, including him. He went out that way. But you just can't help but wonder what would he have been had he submitted himself to God instead of live in rebellion to God, live in rebellion to the leadership that God wanted to be in his life. Now, I bring up Samson because I kind of see the same spirit in the passage we're talking about this morning. What we're going to find in these, this, this handful of verses is, is really what God establishes as biblical headship and, and why we need to live in that structure that he has designed and the good that comes out of it. And we have some things to navigate in this passage. This is a very controversial passage. If you open up commentators, if you open up five books, you'll find five opinions. If you open up ten books, you'll probably find ten opinions on something. There'll be some place of divergence in understanding this passage and what it means. And so we're going to do our our best here to kind of go through this, walk through this passage with you, and hopefully make sense of it in a God-honoring way. But the point we want to take away right away is that God puts headship, which is really another word of saying leadership in our lives. He, He calls some people to different places of authority and responsibility, and he calls sometimes a place of submission. And it's like this almost in every sphere that God has done. All right, You take the idea of human government, which God ordained. Well, there's a headship there. We're supposed to listen and heed the government as much as we can, as long as we're not having to disobey God and that kind of a thing. Because God says that's how it's going to work. And if you think if everybody had the attitude of, well, I don't have to listen to that, what kind of a society would we have? It would be, very, it would be pretty much anarchy, right? And, and you could go to any sphere of life that God has designed. You could talk about the church. How does God set up the church? Well, he says, there's, hey, here's elders. Here's deacons. Here's how this is going to work. And there's a place of, some people say, hey, you have to, you have to, you have to make some decisions here. And there's, there's unity and there's working together, but there's also leadership or the word headship. It's by God's design. And we'll find out why it's by his design as we go through this passage. So we're going to look at Again, reasons to respect headship. And we're going to have three main points. The Godhead is reflected in biblical headship. The creative order is a pattern for biblical headship. And nature and customs affirm biblical headship. And this is the, uh, these are the points that really Paul makes in this passage of Scripture here. So let's first talk about... Um, the Godhead, how it's reflected in biblical headship. Okay. Was that me? Yeah. Okay, great. I didn't have it on, and I went too far. <laughs> the Godhead is reflected in biblical headship. And under this point, we'll look at the first few verses through verse 6, 2 through 6. Okay. Paul begins in... Uh, verse 2, we're going to kind of take point A first, and this is on verse 2. He says again there, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And we'll take a point from here that keeping the truths of God's word as our traditions is praiseworthy. We pick on the Corinthians a lot as we go through these epistles. There's a lot of messed up stuff going on in the church. And Paul's having to say, no, we do it this way. We don't do it that way. 
on and on, okay? We've been dealing with issues, meats offered to uh, idols, divisions in the church, um, you know, marriage-related issues. And, and now we come into an issue of uh, st- structure within the church and what's happening. And we pick on them a lot. But Paul here does praise them because they did keep the traditions that he delivered. And what he's saying here, the, the word for traditions uh, is basically the idea of in teaching or instruction. He says, you have kept some of my instructions. And, 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 and probably he may be talking about the principles of grace. These people got a hold of the word grace, but they were kind of taking grace and saying, I can do whatever I want to do. Their motto, and we read it in the epistle a few times, was, all things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want under God's grace. I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, yeah, but <laughs> there's people and there's, what are you here for? And how are you going to navigate society and live as servants to others? And he put himself as an example back in verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so he says, you're doing some things well. You've kept some of these principles. You've kept some of these teachings. But he's also having to instruct and correct and fill in the gaps and, and, and help them move back to God's way of doing things on, a, on a many categories. But we can at least take away the point that where we are faithful, God will bless. And, God, and that is praiseworthy. There are no perfect people. There are no perfect churches. You don't throw everything and everyone away. Paul didn't throw the Corinthians away. I probably would have. No, I'm just kidding. But I, it's a, what a challenge. There's a lot of things in here I don't want to have to deal with. And he's having to deal with them left and right as he was writing these letters and so forth. But it's praiseworthy when we stand for the truth of God's word and we keep to those things. We heed what God has said us. And now we come to another issue that he had uh, to deal with, beginning in verse 3. And this is on the principle of biblical headship. All right, verse 3 says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. I'm just going to let you take over, Tom. I'm getting some, I'm not always getting it. So we're going to move on to point B here. What this verse shows us, and this is where Paul starts this whole passage, really. This is the principle that we need to understand to understand anything that comes next. Is that headship exists within the Trinity itself. Headship exists in the Godhead between the Father and the Son. That's exactly what this verse says. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. Headship is in the Godhead. It's part of God's character and nature. Again, headship just means leadership. It just means one person has to lead and the other person is, is working alongside, but may need to submit to that decision or leadership. That's the whole idea. And this is going on uh, within the Godhead, and it comes out in different places in Scripture. But within the Godhead, there is, the, there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Are they equal? Yes. They are equally God. They, were, they are equally powerful. No one is inferior. Three persons and one God. That's the Trinity. We don't fully understand it, but the Bible declares it. But in that, the very Godhead, there is this idea of headship. The Son of God submits to the will of the Father. 
That's just how God is. And then what happens is that pattern comes into creation and human relationships. God created man, what? In his own image. If headship exists in God, then what's going, what are you going to find in the image of God? You're going to find some principles of headship, of this leadership structure that God has designed. It's simply a reflection of who he is. So, the, so within the Godhead, the Father is the head. Christ submits to the Father voluntarily. And even the Spirit then bears witness to the Son. And that's uh, a very brief way of, of talking about the members of the Godhead. But we see this pattern even within God's very nature. And this is where Paul starts. I want you to know this. And he starts to extrapolate from the Godhead how this applies in the relationships of men and women and within the local church. <clears throat> uh, as you see again in verse 2, it says, or excuse me, verse 3, the head of woman is man, the head of man is Christ. Okay, so let's, let's begin. We'll walk through the next few verses here, but what we want to see as we go through these next few verses is simple. Men and women are to display biblical headship. And this comes out in other passages of Scripture because men and women are meant to dis display who God is to the world. Everything in, in human life that God made is meant to somehow glorify him and bring attention to him and show forth his character and nature. Whether it's in the role of a husband, a wife, or, or a parent, a father, or mother. Uh, those, all those relationships that's built into family and church are meant to show forth God's character and nature. They're not just things that God just like said, oh, well, I'm just going to do things this way. and do th No, they reflect him. It's like his signature on, the, on his creation. So when we go into scripture, we see wives are called to submit to the leadership of their husbands, and husbands are called to sacrificially love their wives. That's Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. You're probably familiar with that passage. We're not going to go to it right now. But he, he, he explains those callings and how God wants us to function as husband and wife in that passage. And, it's, and it's, a, it's an expression of this biblical headship structure that God has given us. It reflects him. A loving husband and, 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 and loving wife together in that, in that capacity, that is a picture of God to the world. That's what God intends. God created marriage. He created family. And that's meant to show the world Kind of what he's like. So when we denigrate the family structure, when we denigrate marriage, we actually slander the character of God. That's what really happens in our life because of it reflects his nature and who he is. So we're called to display it in these relationships. <clears throat> okay. And here, verse 3 again, it says, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man. And we need to say a few words as we start to walk through this passage because some translations render it wives instead of women. And in the Greek words, the words are interchangeable. It can mean wife or woman. It depends on the context. Paul's used the word previously for both women and wives. So is it just wives he's talking about, or is it women in general? That's a question we have to ask. And, and, and again, you're going to find different views, but I have to lean toward it's women in general because of what it says. Because then you'd have to say only husbands are under Christ's headship. But it says every man. And then it says the woman under the man. 
And that's a headship principle. And I think that takes shape, certainly with wives and husbands, but even in the family, ideally, uh, a woman has a, ideally a father to look to. And if not a father, perhaps another godly, trusted, older man. But that, again, this is, this is what the scripture seems to be saying here. That this is a, a general principle. So what I'm saying to you is what I see in verse 3. This is transcultural. Some people look at this passage and they say, no, this is all cultural. You just skip to verse 17, basically. But he reasons from who God is and he reasons from creation. And then he, and he, and he builds some other arguments of, of why he's saying what he says. The principle is God's structure of biblical headship. And now what, it, what you see as you go on is you see how it took shape in that culture. And the customs that demonstrated it then in that time and place. So let's walk through some of these verses together. Let's start with verse 4. And I'm just going to kind of read the verses, explain them a little bit, and, and move through them for a moment here. Verse 4 says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head cover, uh, dishonors his head. A couple of things real quick. It seems like in this context, we're talking about as they come together as a church. That this is a church meeting, like what we're doing this morning. Because you got men praying and prophesying, apparently, in a public manner. So maybe they're standing up before the, before the, the, the believers and they're, and they're praying unto God, or they have a prophecy to, to share. And in this time, as we'll see a little bit later in 1 Corinthians... Uh, these people were given supernatural gifts. They did get words from the Lord, and they were to make them known. And there was some speaking in tongues and interpreting, and you'll see that in chapters uh, 13 and 14 and so forth. So those, some, those were some things going on in the church then. Uh, but, but I think you could just kind of generally take it is when they would stand up to do some kind of a, a public ministry within the church function, Paul says, their head should be uncovered. It dishonors their head if they cover it. Now, that could be a reference to the fact um, that in that culture, uh, some men toward, uh, tended toward being effeminate. It's something Paul actually briefly warned against back in chapter 6. He had to deal with a lot of issues in Corinth. There he talked, had to talk about harlots. He talked about people being sodomites and effeminate and different issues like that. And the problem in the Corinthian church was we're letting the world shape what we're doing. And, and this could have been a thing. It, whatever we say and however we take this verse, it seems like at least what was happening in, in Corinth at the time is there was some reversals of the roles of men and women going on in the church. And that's essentially what Paul's saying. No, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. Follow God's pattern of what it means to be a man and a woman. So they, some of these men apparently would get up and they would cover their head, which was a symbol of, it was a feminine thing in that culture. So they were basically, you know, almost like, I mean, I don't want to say it too strongly, but putting on an article of women's clothing when they ministered publicly. And you'd be like, well, why are they doing that? Well, that's the question I have. I don't know why they're doing it. It sounds like they're just getting their, their input from the world. And Paul says, no, that's dishonoring. Okay. <clears throat> We're going to see a sort of a sub-theme of this passage is, again, men are men and women are women. Our culture today, we got some people struggling with that, don't we? The culture back then, people struggled with it. It's not a new thing. Uh, 
And we go into verse 5 and we see the opposite now of the role reversals. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Okay, let's unpack that verse just for a second. So some of the women, they would stand up before the church. And, and notice that, that Paul's not correcting that. You know, there's a place for women to speak at times, okay? We'll talk about that. We'll have to deal with some other passages down the road. But that's, that's what's going on here. I, some would try to say this is actually talking about more like private in-home meetings, but I'm, I can't see that from the text. This is the church coming together. And men are getting up, and women are getting up, and they're saying things, they're praying, they're doing things, okay? And some of the women had the gift of prophecy, evidently, right? And so they needed a, they needed a place to speak. But he says when they do it, they should have their head covered. And if they don't cover their head, they might as well shave their head. So what's going on with that? Well, here, here's the main thing here with the head coverings for women. In that time and place, and it was, it's pretty common in the ancient world. It was certainly a Jewish custom, and it was a Greco-Roman custom that, that oftentimes the women wore head coverings, okay, and one of, the, one of the things that Paul imputes to that in this passage is when they did so, it showed that they were respecting the headship of their husband or the headship of the man in their life, that they were re- simply respecting that, that the head covering was simply a symbol that showed I respect the God-given structure. And that's it. Okay? That it was simply a symbol but when they got up publicly, they were saying, I'm not doing that. I take away that it's like a woman trying to minister as a man. And Paul says, if you're going to throw away the symbol of that, you might as well get, get a man haircut. You might as well shave your head like a man. That's, that's kind of how I'm reading this. There's some other thoughts. Some people think that when he talks about their cut hair, He's comparing them to the prostitutes of the day, which supposedly that was one of their customs, to keep their hair short. That was the sign. So you may go out in, in ancient Corinth, and, and again, this is, this is kind of questionable because you're outside of Scripture and you're looking at customs, that the prostitutes of Corinth did not wear a head covering. They cut their hair short. So when you do that, well, you, you, know, you could be connecting with that, dressing like a prostitute, basically. Okay. But I think he's talking more about you're usurping the place that I've put men in. So the man, if a man's trying to minister like a woman in the church, that's not right. If a woman's trying to minister like a man in the church, that's not right. Okay? And the head covering is simply the symbol of all that. It was a cultural symbol that designated that, all right? So let's move on here. Verse 6. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is a shame, if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So he kind of continues the point of verse five: the woman who's throwing off the head covering to, to before the church to, to pray or prophesy before the church. Again, she might as well shave her head down. And he says, but but he's basically saying, if you think that the woman cutting her hair off is wrong, then you should take that a step further and realize that this is wrong too to remove the head covering in that culture. He's basically pointing out places where the woman is adopting masculine traits. You're trying to dress like a man, look like a man, and act like a man. And that doesn't honor God's, that doesn't honor God's given roles of gender. It doesn't honor God's biblical headship that he's inscribed into creation. It doesn't honor God. Because you're basically rebelling against what God has done. 
Okay? So that seems to be the reasoning here in the first few verses. The issue, again, head coverings in ancient Greek culture. And by, by getting rid of these head coverings in this situation, they were, they were dismissing headship, God-ordained roles. They were dismissive of that. And it could be that because they understood grace, they said, we can do whatever we want. We don't need this. We don't want that. We're going to do what we want to do. That's what the Corinthians were guilty of. We call that uh, licentiousness. We throw off all order. We say, I do what I want to do when I want to do it. I have liberty in Christ. He says, yeah, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Sure, you could go down to the temple and eat and be with the, temp- the idols. Sure, I guess you could, you, know, you could throw off God's design of men and women and, and, and you know, under the grace of God, I guess you're not going to lose your salvation. But what are you going to do in your testimony? How are you impacting the people around you? And that's what's at stake here, too. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But it was probably just another abuse of their understanding of their liberty in Christ. But Paul's whole point in this section of Scripture was, let love lead your liberty. Let love guide you. What's best in your context for reaching the people around you? What's going to be best? So again, the main issue of those first few verses Instead of reflecting the God-ordained structure of biblical headship, which is a picture of God himself to be stamped in society through us, they were throwing that off with their behavior, reversing the roles of men and women, getting, getting into that kind of stuff, and it was going to only bring hurt to their assembly. Just another thing that would be a stumbling block to, to others around them. But we're going to take away the principle is biblical headship. The application here was the cultural symbol of the head covering. That represented headship. Let's go on. We'll look at verses 7 through 12 next under the heading of how the creative order is a pattern for biblical headship. Paul says, you see it in God. You see it in even how God created us. And he goes back to the story we find in Genesis chapter 1 of the creation of Adam and Eve, and he makes some applications. First of all, let's note that men and women were created in the image of God. Uh, that is clear in Scripture. Genesis 1.27 says, God made mankind in his own image, both male and female. Man and woman equally display the image of God. There is no inferiority. They equally display the image of God. They're both equally significant, equally valuable, equal in personhood. It's clear. They're created in the image of God. But Paul brings up some applications for the order of creation. Look at verse 8. Oops, I think I skipped over verse 7, didn't I? No, I want to start with verse 7. Verse 7, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. You read that verse and you think, well, what is he saying? Only men are in the image of God? No, Paul knew Genesis, just like I read to you a moment ago. Man and woman, both in the image of God. But he says, in addition to that, it's kind of like saying that, man was created first, then the woman. 
He says, man is also the glory of God, and woman is the glory of man. What does that mean? Is woman not created for the glory of God? Well, certainly she is, but here I think he's just getting back to there's a structure of headship, and when we do it God's way, there's more glory to God. There's more glory. There's more glory. Okay? Verse 8, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. That's just going back to the story of creation. God created Adam out of the dust of the ground back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He creates everything. Adam names the animal kinds. And then God famously says, it is not good for man to be alone. It's the only thing in creation he says, not good, man to be alone. I will make for him a help meet. And Adam goes to sleep. God takes a rib, creates Eve. Now it's all good again. Male and female, man and woman. But woman came from man. So Paul makes that principle. He's saying the order of creation was implying the principle of headship and how this is going to work. Verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So again, because of the creative order, the way God made Adam and Eve, he says it's a picture of headship. It's a picture of, of, of this structure that God would, would like us to follow. Loving leadership on the man's part, respecting submission on the woman's part, a unity in that diversity that would honor the character and nature of God. <clears throat> so the order of creation, this is point B, the order of creation demonstrates God's intentions for headship. That's the point Paul's making. And we come to verse 10, and he says, For this reason, based on who God is, based on creation and how God structured things, this is why I'm telling you that she should keep the head covering on in this situation. Because if it's a symbol to show I honor this headship, then by all means continue to do it. Show that you honor that headship. That's what he was telling them. Now, we're going to have to answer the question, what does that look like now? And I might as well tell you now that, again, I see the head covering, and for that, and for that matter, when he talks about hair length in a little bit, I see that as taking the principle of headship and then taking the cultural aspects and finding an application. Okay? I don't believe that God is saying you need to wear a head covering today or you need to do this today. I think he's saying in that culture, this is why it's understood. You wear a head covering, it shows submission. If you don't wear it, you don't show submission. The point is, how do you show submission in your culture? How do you show love in your culture? How do, you, how do we bring out these principles? How do we show the principle, verse 3, in our culture? And I don't think it's a head covering. You do that, nobody would even know what you're doing. So how would that even speak to the culture? You wear your hair a certain way. What does that speak to the culture? I don't, you have to look at that. And that's what makes this passage somewhat difficult. These are not laws. This isn't law. This is principle playing out in a culture. That's how I view it. You'll find others that would disagree, sure. I mean, there's all, there's, there's, you put a spectrum, you'll find somebody at every point on it. <clears throat> but how do we show biblical headship in our culture? I think it comes across mainly through attitude and, and then certainly through action and behavior. It's pretty obvious to me when a woman, a wife respects her husband, when a husband lovingly leads his wife. Those things are pretty evident to most people in our culture. 
You know, I, I think we would we could probably brainstorm and we'd find ways like this communicates that to me or that communicates it to me. You might have differences of that. I don't think this passage is saying we need to come up with a different symbol to show it. Some people take that view that you need to have some other symbol. So I don't, I don't, then you just make that a law. You become legalistic with that. I don't think that's God's intention here. God's intention is respect the biblical headship that he's created, that he's stamped and imprinted upon man and woman, and that's where you're going to find God's best and where you're going to find fulfillment. A woman who is content with being a woman and finds her joy and glory in God, that, there is no greater fulfillment. And the man, the man who's content in being a man and doesn't shirk responsibility or try to be passive, but accepts his God-given role, he's, he's going to find fulfillment and he's going to glorify God in that role. That's God's creation. That's not my word, that's his word. We trip on the head coverings here and the long hair on the passage. We trip on that. But those were cultural things. That was just an application of that principle. And now we have to judge what's our application. How am I going to live out the principle of biblical headship with my wife and in my family and in my local church? And I think it comes through, again, as attitude of respect and attitude, uh, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. Heeding the leadership that we are put under in those different spheres of life. That's how we honor it. So Paul says in verse 10, for this reason, the woman should have authority on her head. You'll notice in some of your Bible translations, the symbol is put there in italics because it's not there in the Greek. It just says authority on her head because of the angels. And I think what he's saying is that head covering is a picture that I submit to God-given authority. It's just a picture of that. And that's why some Bibles translate it symbol. It's a picture of that. I don't know exactly what that picture looks like in our time. I mean, I know, I could say, I know, I know, when, I know when my wife shows respect. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> and I'm sure we all could tell. And we can tell when somebody's abusing authority, right? We can tell. It's pretty intuitive. So don't get, don't get hung out on the symbols. Look at the heart. And how does that come out in my life? But he throws in there, just to really make this passage all the more challenging, he says, because of the angels. And then he just moves right on. He doesn't explain it. Because of the angels. So that's my new answer. When my kids say, why, Dad? Because of the angels. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because of the angels. What's he talking about there? Well, don't know that we have a complete answer. But we can make some, we can, we can perhaps grab a few verses. Ephesians 3.10 tells us, that the wisdom of God is, is made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavens. That, that the angels watch us and they actually see the grace of God and the wisdom of God unfolding in our lives. And they praise God in his presence for what they see happen in our lives. So the angels are watching. And that may be why he tells the women, do this because the angels are watching you. People are talking about you in heaven right now. Won't you live God's way <laughs> so they have more to talk about? And earlier in this very epistle, back in chapter 6, he's talking about they shouldn't be suing each other because they have enough discernment skills. They ought to be able to work things out in their church. And he says, don't you know that we will judge angels? And he throws that out. He moves on. You're going to judge angels. What's that mean? Well, apparently, when we're home in heaven, the structure of headship actually is going to change. 
Right now, we would say we're a little lower than the angels. That's what the Bible says, right? Man's a little lower than the angels. But in heaven, you shall judge angels. There's a change there. Angels are going to answer to me. That certainly seems what that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4 says. So maybe that's continuing on here. That you may, you may be asked to submit now, but one day you're going to judge angels too. Because of the angels. We could maybe say more about that, but again, there you go. Kids ask you a tough question because of the angels. And just, just, just skip on through it. <laughs> but to give balance to this thing that Paul's talking about in headship, he, he begins to give balance in verse 11. And here we see that men and women are interdependent upon one another, which is meant to glorify God. They're interdependent upon one another. You can't live apart. Verse 11, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Uh, you can't have one without the other, right? You can't have one without the other. And verse 12 explains it. For as woman came from man, that's going back to Adam and Eve, yes, woman came from man, even so, man also comes through woman. What's that mean? You can't have men without women, right? You can't, you can't, it's a whole birthing process, right? All men, except Adam, have a mom, right? And that's what that verse is saying. You don't have men without women. You can't, we talk about the equality, equal in personhood, equal in significance, equal in value, different in role, different in function in some capacities. But this verse tells you equally indispensable. Equally indispensable. You can't have one without the other. And you know that. that. Life teaches you that pretty quick, right? Male and female are necessary. God created both in his image. He has a plan for both. And when, they, when a man and woman come together in marriage, obviously, then they can bring forth offspring and continue uh, as God intended. But And then he says in verse 12, all things are from God. And it shows that Men and women both have their source in God. Neither exist apart from each other, and they certainly don't exist apart from God. Everyone is dependent upon God. God gives breath and life to all. And so Paul is guarding against the very attitude of like, well, maybe we don't need women here. No, <laughs> you better not go down that path either. You'll be in serious trouble. And you can start to see how he's given principles in this passage to, to, to protect these things, to protect that it ultimately all comes from God, and it's a reflection of who he is, that you don't, you don't uh, step on the women because they have value in God, and they're, they're necessary, and, and they, we, have our, we both have our function and role. And he protects even in this passage what it means to be a man and a woman, to find your fulfillment in being a godly man or a woman, and not trying to reverse roles. There's all kinds of things in this passage meant to protect us from those extremes and then we come to the last point that Paul makes it's a couple of points really but we'll, we'll put them together about how nature and customs affirm biblical headship this is sort of the last argument he makes to him he's talked about this is God this is how God works so this is how we work this is how God created and that tells us something about where we where we kind of fit in here and how God wants things to work and then he says now you judge. 
And you make some decisions here. And look, just look. He says, observe. What does nature teach you? Okay, so look at verse 13. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, let's make some points here. Point A, people intuitively recognize differences between men and women. Yes, the Bible says so. <laughs> they intuit- you intuitively know this. That's what he's saying. He says, what does nature teach you? What, does, what do you know? And, and it's sort of like pointing the finger of, you know this intuitively. Because as you just look at society, at people, men and women... It just, it just, you could look at any society in history, no matter what society you look at, there's always some level where men and women, uh, the, the, the differences become manifest in the culture some way. Okay? It's just a natural thing that happens. We intuitively know the differences between men and women. We certainly know we differ biologically. Right? Women have babies, men don't. Etc. We, we're different. We're shaped different. We even think differently at times. And, and some studies even tell us our brains kind of wired a little bit differently in how we function. These things are, are there to observe. We are equal, but there is differences that God intended, and it's all to his glory. And this passage just recognizes that. And what he's calling the Corinthians to do is he says, you, you, you as a people, you have these things. You have women's clothing, and then you have men's clothing. And if you have that in your culture, and almost every culture has ever, that I'm aware of has had something to that effect, what does it mean when, you're, when a woman's going to wear men's clothes or a man's going to wear women's clothes? What is that saying? It may be saying, I don't like my identity. I don't like who I am. But what is it saying about who God created you to be? I don't like what God's doing here. I don't like what God did with me. Now, we live in a culture where those are real-life questions every day now. You know, we, 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 get, we face a lot of that kind of a thing in our culture. But a man and a woman, they only find fulfillment in accepting who God made you to be. What Paul's dealing with here are people in the church that were tending down a different road of reversing that order. And they were doing so by how they dressed, how they wore their hair. In that culture... Women trying to look like a man or a man trying to look like a woman. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, to us today? But it goes back, who is God? And who has God made you to be? Find your joy in that. But again, every culture recognizes a difference to some extreme. Or excuse me, to some, to some point. There's some application of it. We have different clothing. We have different things that we consider a feminine trait or a masculine trait, and every culture has them. What does that tell us? It tells us that we intuitively recognize there's a difference, or none of that stuff would have ever come about. If everybody's just same and there's no difference, then there would would never have been anything like that. So he says, you recognize it by nature. And And he says, he goes on, talks about the hair length in this. If a man has long hair, it's a dishonor. Why? Because in this situation, the man's trying to look like a woman. It's a, it's, a, it's a feminine trait here. 
But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory. It's a good thing. Why? Because it's a feminine trait. It, 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 she's, she's content in who she is in, in, in God's creation. I'm a woman, and I'm glad to be a woman. And it's a good thing. And that's why it's a glory to her. Because in that culture, that was a, a feminine trait. But again, we have to be careful with these verses, because you could take this and, and try to say, well, that's, this is how we judge Americans in the 21st century. Uh, in the 21st century, excuse me. And, uh, well, we have to start asking a lot of questions. If we were going to just take these as de facto verses that we apply across the board without any consideration of culture and context, uh, how long is too long? How short is too short? Who determines it? It's kind of relative. It's relative to your culture and your place and time. So you've got to be real careful about judging people on hair length today uh, because it's very clear in that time what it meant. We have to say, what does it mean now, and how do we apply this? Again, what we're being called to here is a contentment in our God-given gender. And if you will, finding a glory in that, because that's who God made you to be. Verse 16, kind of Paul's final point. And I'll be honest, my view of what this verse was saying has changed, because I used to think he was just saying, this is all just custom, so we're going to move on. But actually, that's, I don't think that's what he's saying. Verse 16 says, But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And my point here is, needlessly rejecting customs can be more harmful than helpful. Here's what I think Paul is saying in verse 16. First of all, if anyone seems to be contentious means someone who thinks in a contentious way. Somebody who the word for contentious means love strife. They love strife. Some people are just geared that way. You ever met anybody like that? Just always ready for a good fight. <laughs> always ready for a good quarrel on something. And some people just live that way. And he knows people are going to, everything he said here, somebody's going to have something else to say. Somebody's going to be fighting back. But even so, he says, even if some are going to be contentious, we have no such custom. Now, who's the we in this context? You go through 1 Corinthians, the we is Paul. And you could perhaps say in Sosthenes, who co-wrote the epistle. And you could perhaps say Apollos, who he says, we, the apostles. So I think he's talking about leaders, the leaders, maybe even the apostolic leaders in the body of Christ. We have no such custom. Meaning, what I think he's saying here is, is we don't have a different custom from what I'm telling you. We're not just telling you to do one thing and teaching everybody else to do another. What he said about how to respect headship in this culture, he says, we're going to tell everybody to do that, whether it's at Athens or over here in Thessalonica or wherever. We're not telling you anything different we're telling anybody else. We're not giving you one custom and then we're telling everybody else they do something else. That's what I think he's saying there. And then he says, nor do the churches of God. So what he's saying is we hold no other custom and the churches of God hold no other custom than what I've told you. We're not, and the, the other churches, they're, they're following our instruction on this as well. So likely if you were to go to other churches in the world at that time, you would see the men uh, uh, uncover their head, and you'd see the women wear a covering on their head when they prophesied and prayed. He's telling them that we and the churches, we're okay with the customs. We're not here to change everything. We're here to reach the people that live in these cultures. And that's why we're advising you, don't just throw it all away trying to make a point. Live in the world you live in. There's a balance there. There's a discernment, right? 
I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. But you know, it's like we see a lot of missionaries. They go to new culture. They go to new places. And they find that if they immerse themselves more in the culture and the customs, they become more winsome to the people around us. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China in the 1800s. And when he went, he had a lot of trouble, but he, he, he learned the Chinese language. He even began to adopt some of the Chinese clothing. And that spoke to the people that he was not there to impose his cultural context, but simply to reach them. He became like them in that capacity to reach them. And as he did that, he began to find many people drawn to Christ through his ministry. And the mission, and missionaries since have learned from that. You don't have to be worldly to live in a place where you can be approachable by the world. One last thing. We'll read, I want to reread the end of chapter 10. Everything we're reading about is simply applications of what he's already said. Chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. He's saying, don't just throw everything off because you can. Be discerning. Live in a way that you can approach people and people can approach you. Don't make everything an issue. Make Jesus Christ the issue. For us, I don't think head coverings is an issue anymore. But, but, but the, the God-given biblical headship, that is an issue. And we need to think about how does that look in my life? How do I honor my God-given role in my family, in my church? Well, I may leave you more confused than you began. Hopefully not. But let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord. And sometimes we come to passages that are more challenging and we have to think through them very carefully about what they're saying to us today. And, Lord, we know sometimes we have to be able to, to think very uh, closely on these things. But we just pray for your continued enlightenment and discernment on these issues. And may each of us find our glory in you and in who you made us to be. And may we live to our full potential, Lord, by submitting ultimately to you and what you've called us to as men, as women, as children, Father. May we just honor you in all things and may you have all the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, as you're able, stand and stretch your legs.